Today on Just World Podcasts, Palestinian Jerusalem faces a fourth wave of Israeli assaults. Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational. This week's podcast is the seventh in our series Story Backstory, which explores Washington's current policies in the Middle East and the Middle East itself in a broader historical perspective. Each of the weekly podcasts in this series is linked to an opinion column that gets published a couple of days earlier, usually on the Great Mondo Weiss website. The current podcast is no exception. My written column on this topic was published on mondoweiss.net on Wednesday, April the 3rd. This week, I'm delighted to have as my guest on the podcast Nora Lester Murad, a writer and activist who spent 13 years in Palestine before she relocated to New York City in 2017. Eight of those years she spent living in Jerusalem, and after she moved from there to nearby Ramallah, she continued to commute back and forth to Jerusalem. Ms. Murad was a co-founder of Palestine's community foundation, the Dahlia Association and the founder of a community-driven aid accountability initiative called Aid Watch Palestine. Her first book, Rest in My Shade, was published just recently by Interlink Books and is now available wherever books are sold. It's a poetry and art book about roots. I can't wait to read it. Currently, Ms. Murad is teaching critical humanitarian studies at New York's Fordham University. Today, to make more time for you to listen to the great conversation I had with Nora Lester Murad, I'm not going to read the whole text of my column. I'll just give you a brief digest of it, though of course I hope you go to Mondo Weiss and read the whole thing. Basically, the column tracks what I identified as the four successive waves of the Zionist-slash-Israeli attack on Palestinian Jerusalem. The first was in 1948, when the Jewish, later Israeli, fighting forces ethnically cleansed the whole of West Jerusalem of its Palestinian inhabitants. Incidentally, West Jerusalem was the most thoroughly ethnically cleansed of all the urban areas that the Jewish-Israeli forces took hold of that year. The second wave came in 1967, after the Israeli military swept into East Jerusalem and the whole of the rest of the West Bank, and started taking some extremely damaging moves against those newly occupied parts of the city. That year, the Israeli Knesset also annexed East Jerusalem to the State of Israel, though it's worth noting that that annexation has never been formally recognized by any significant external power, including the United States. I identified a third wave of the assault as coming in 1993, with the signing of the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. Prior to that year, East Jerusalem had still retained its role as a regional capital for the inhabitants of the rest of the West Bank. They would come to the city for its fine hospitals, schools, shops and other institutions, as well as for its Muslim and Christian holy places. But immediately after the signing of the Oslo Accords, the Israeli authorities worked systematically to cut East Jerusalem off from its West Bank hinterland, 
most blatantly by erecting a ring of checkpoints on all the roads leading between the West Bank and Jerusalem. Those checkpoints have since been hardened and connected by Israel's infamous 30-foot-high wall. The checkpoints have always been extremely discriminatory, since cars with yellow Israeli plates fly right through them, while no cars with West Bank plates are allowed through at all. In my article, I identified the fourth wave of Israel's attacks on Palestinian Jerusalem as having been launched when President Trump moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem last year, sending a strong signal that anything the Israeli government might choose to do in the city is quite okay by Washington. In each of these waves, I noted how they were accompanied by a new phase of the Zionist project of implanting Jewish settlers into and around the city, in a determined effort to replace its indigenous Palestinian population as the latter were being systematically squeezed out. In the conversation with Nora Lester Murad that follows, she evocatively describes Jerusalem as the front line of the Palestinians' ongoing Nakba, that is, catastrophe. This term Nakba was originally used to describe the catastrophe of widespread expulsion and dispossession that the Palestinians suffered during the fighting of 1947-48. But many Palestinians and others have noted that Israel's expulsion and dispossession of Palestinians has been a continuous process since then as well, and one that continues until today. In our conversation, Ms. Murad gives a granular, first-hand account of what life is like for Palestinians in Jerusalem today, so I'm eager to dive into that conversation. But before I do so, let me quickly invite you to visit our website, www.justworldeducational.org. There, you can learn a lot more about Just World Ed. You can sample the great educational resources we make available there, including a handy portal to all the content we have now produced in this story backstory project. You'll find links to our social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll also find a handy tab on the website that tells you how you can donate to support our timely educational work. Please consider doing so. As always, please also note that the opinions and judgments I express in this project are my own. They do not represent the views of Just World Educational or any other organization. So now, let's go straight into my conversation with Nora Lester Morad. I'm here on the phone with Nora Lester Morad, and Nora, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. So, um, Nora has lived in Jerusalem and then in nearby Ramallah for several years, many years, from 2004 through 2017. So I'm really excited, Nora, to have you here to give some feedback on the article that I published earlier this week on Mondo Weiss, um, and also to talk about some of the many um, things that you observed and participated in when you were there um, setting up and running what sounds like a really interesting community foundation called Dahlia Community Foundation. So let's start off, Nora, with um, any kind of um, observations you have about my article in, in uh, Mondo Wise. Uh, sure. Um, 
your your article, uh, Palestinian Jerusalem faces a fourth wave of Israeli assaults, was really such an impressive overview and, and comprehensive overview of the very very long history of systematic assault uh, by Israel on Palestinians in Jerusalem in particular, and it's extremely valuable. Um, the main comment that I had was your your use of the word wave in the title because waves ebb and flow and I don't think there's very much ebbing in the in the assaults on Jerusalem. It just pretty much flows. Um, one thing you did comment on is by breaking it down into different pieces of, of chunks of time, how changes in the macro level can provide opportunities uh, for the Israelis to go in and, and create a new wedge or a new strategy or to implement a strategy that they've had in their back pocket. And it reminded me a little bit of Naomi Klein's uh, shock doctrine or Anthony Lowenstein's uh, disaster capitalism, where they talk about how certain kinds of um, macro political or economic or or even environmental developments can create a new situation that allow a lot of people to exploit and then profit, ultimately profit from a disaster. And I think that's also very implicit in your article. Oh, that's a great observation. Thank you so much. I think, you know, when I was talking about waves, I, I wasn't really thinking of them ebbing. I was thinking of them coming in on top of each other. So yeah, that's good to, to have that clarified. And I guess, you know, in terms of the macro coming down to affecting what happens in people's daily lives, then Trump sort of, you know, opening the the floodgates to people thinking of Jerusalem as Israel's capital was such a macro um, event. I'm I'm particularly interested in the fact that you had that very granular experience in Jerusalem and also in Ramallah. Um, and I'd love you to, if, if you could share with the listeners, many of whom may not have ever been to Jerusalem or certainly didn't have the, the kind of close relationship with daily life there that the Palestinians live, what are some of the main daily obstacles that they, I know that's a very broad question, but just tell me a few stories about, you know, people's daily lives and what happens to them under this very bizarre and oppressive regime? Uh, sure, I'll try to. Well, as um, I think is implied um, in your article, there are Palestinians, different groups of Palestinians with different statuses. The Palestinians in the West Bank, the West Bankers have a certain kind of ID card, the ones in Gaza have a certain type of ID card, the Palestinians who are citizens of Israel have a certain type of ID card, and then, of course, uh, refugees, the registered ones by UNRWA, and then unregistered refugees who tend to have um, the worst situation um, when they're in refugee camps. And Jerusalem is different than all of those. Jerusalem is unique. Um, of course, all of those identity cards, uh, identity card doesn't sound very important to someone like me sitting in New York City right now, but um, the identity card is, first of all, issued by Israel, and second of all, determines where you can go. So people with um, orange identity cards can't travel um, certain places. People with blue identity cards have the most uh, mobility 
um, people with green identity cards are very restricted. So just on a kind of daily level, your identity card determines where you can go. And where you can go determines where you can work, uh, where you can go to school or can't go to school, and sometimes even determines who you can marry and not marry. Because when a Palestinian, let's say from Jerusalem, marries a Palestinian from Nablus, and this is a real situation, um, I'm talking about a girlfriend of mine who fell in love, as people do, and married uh, a man from Nablus, she could not live in Nablus with her husband because she would lose her blue identity card, which would mean losing the privilege of seeing her father ever again. Sorry, could could her husband come and live with her in Jerusalem? And her husband could not come and live with her in Jerusalem. West Bankers are not allowed into Jerusalem without a mili- without military permission, which is extremely difficult to get. Um, the only ones that get it really are workers that Israel has chosen that it needs to come and work in certain menial jobs inside Israel. Otherwise, West Bankers can't get into Jerusalem. Uh, people from Gaza can't get into Jerusalem. And people from Jerusalem are not uh, supposed to go to the West Bank, but they do all the time. They can also travel inside Israel into the areas that Palestinians call 1948 or inside the Green Line. Um, But my friend who had a blue identity card, an Israeli um, identity card, she could travel to visit her husband in Nablus. But if she stayed there and established a residence, she would lose her blue identity card because Israel has a um, policy called the center of life policy that if a Jerusalemite ceases to have their center of life in Jerusalem, they lose their residency privileges and become therefore... um, susceptible to Israel's denial of entry at any time. They have to request military permission in order to get back in to the place where they were born, to the place where their parents live, to the place where their, you know, their cousin is getting married or their grandmother is dying or whatever. So they must retain sounds, that center of life. It sounds um, just like the South African passbook system where the central government issues a passbook that determines where you can live, where you can work, where you can marry. Um, with, in this case, as, as in the South African case, no justification under kind of the natural order of things. You know, somebody, one Palestinian living in one city wants to get married to another Palestinian living in another city and can't. I mean, that's, that's, bizarre that's outrageous and then those lines between so-called jerusalem and so-called the west bank first of all i mean as i think i said in my article you know before before oslo that was a very extremely porous thing the municipal boundary you know people would come and go and jerusalem continued to act as the sort of the regional capital for all the palestinians of the west bank but then after Oslo, the Israelis clamped this ring of steel around East Jerusalem and, and cut, it, cut off those people. So it, it does, I mean, it just sounds at a human level unsupportable. It's unsupportable, and yet somehow they continue to impose these kinds of, you said, use the word bizarre, I would agree, bizarre and 
almost surrealistic kinds of uh, policies. And what's even worse is that the policies are not really policies. Um, they can have a new policy every day if they want to. And they're not published anywhere. They're not discussed anywhere. Anything that happens under the umbrella of, of security, and I put that in quotes, is kind of um, um, approved without without very much, if any, civil society um, uh, supervision or oversight. Um, so just to give you an example of one of my the, the most bizarre cases was a friend of mine who was uh, young and involved in uh, different kind of resistance activities in Kalandia refugee camp. Kalandia refugee camp is um, right between Jerusalem and Ramallah, and it's administered by the United Nations. So Israeli soldiers should not be going in there on a daily basis, but they do. Um, and when they do, the there's some kind of a mechanism by which the young men, generally men, um, notify one another that there are soldiers in the camp and they go up onto the roofs and they throw rocks onto the um, the jeeps, the tanks and the jeeps that are coming through uh, Kalandia camp. Um, I'm not a a proponent or a supporter of, of any kind of violence really except to say that um, a, a rock is not going to do much when thrown at a fortified jeep or a tank um, and yet those jeeps and tanks will turn around and fire live ammunition and, and kill those young men who are who are trying to defend their own refugee camp. Remember this is not Palestinians going into Israel to do some kind of uh, troublemaking. These are Israelis that are going into Palestinian areas to do troublemaking. So um, one of my uh, friends um, was uh, arrested. Um, he was arrested after he was shot. They came looking for him. He was shot in the leg. He was able to escape. He spent almost a year in the Ramallah hospital. And then on the day that he was being released, it snowed. So he had this idea that because it's snowing, the soldiers weren't going to come get him. So he would go home and see his family. And the next day, he would go into hiding because he was wanted. But the soldiers did come despite the snow, and they arrested him. So he went almost directly from the hospital into jail. And in jail, the, he was brought before a military judge because these are not civil courts. These are military courts. And the judge told him, I will um, keep you in jail for five years unless you get married. I'm going to let you go. And if you get married, I won't pick you up again and put you back in jail. Now, that sounds so surrealistic, so almost comical. Um, but the judge had this idea that if this young man gets married, then he would have responsibilities and he would cease to be involved with resistance activities, which um, which I think is true. I think that there is a strong sense of being responsible for your family, and the married young men are, are much more likely to to stay out of of uh, resistance activities. So he went out of jail and spent three or four months looking, and he found a young woman. She was, I think, 15 at the time. They got married. He was 17. They got married and immediately had three children. And it's been um, a very, let's say, um, 
tumultuous and unnatural kind of a development of a of a family. Um, but the fact that a military judge would tell someone, I'm going to put you in jail unless you get married, where does that happen? That is bizarre, really. Uh, <laughs> boggles the mind. Um, actually, that's interesting. A few of the points you made are so interesting there. One is that the military court is acting inside the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem, right? Because Columbia refugee camp, like Shu'afat refugee camp, is inside the municipal boundaries of, of Jerusalem. But when they built the wall, the Israelis carefully excluded those two areas from the area inside the wall. So they are kind of, they're all in a sort of legal limbo. I, I guess you could say that the whole of the, the military occupation of, of Jerusalem and the West Bank is a military limbo, but these people's um, situation seems particularly vulnerable. Yeah, well, your use of the word legal is interesting because um, Israel does all kinds of things that are illegal by international law and absolutely immoral by anybody's morality, but they um, create laws or rules or um, municipal ordinances that allow them and therefore they make quote, legal, something that is really, quote, un illegal. Um, so it, it's really a funny thing. Israel is often saying that they're abiding by the law, but the, it's a law that they have created and, um, and distorted and, and which continues to develop. I can give you an example about that if that's of interest to you. Oh, sure. And then I also, uh, before we finish, I want to ask you about home demolitions. Yes, well, this is actually a home demolition um, example. I'm glad you asked that question. So um, I have a, a dear friend. His name is Nuruddin Amro, and anyone who's interested in his story can read it in the Washington Post. Uh, in 2015, his home was partially demolished. And what's interesting is the Israelis have created law that enable them to demolish homes for various reasons. One is for security reasons. So if someone in the home is um, deemed, I'm going to say the word deemed, not convicted, because these are not legitimate courts. But if they've been deemed to be uh, guilty with a security crime, maybe uh, attacking somebody or attempting to bomb something or threatening someone with a knife, then the whole house of the family will be demolished, even if... The no one in the family knew that this person was going to do this, and even if that person wasn't living at home at the time, um, so it's a it's a punitive measure that's under the security um, security demolitions category. But then there are administrative demolitions, which is when a home or part of a home was built without a building permit, and those homes or um, parts of homes are liable for demolition. Um, it sounds very logical and civil and civilized on the surface until you find out that they do not grant building permits for Palestinians, not only in East Jerusalem, but anywhere in Area C, as you talked about in your article. Um, so that means that if your family is growing, it's quite natural that you might add a room onto your home because you no longer can survive in a bedroom and a living room and a bathroom. You now need a 
family room or a second bedroom or, or any other room to natural family growth. But they will apply for a permit and which costs money and they'll be extended, they'll have to pay more money, it'll be extended, they'll have to pay more money. And this can go on for years and years without them ever getting a building permit. So many families will just build and hope that it's not discovered and that the Israelis will not demolish. That would be considered a, quote, legal demolition. If somebody built an, an, an additional room to their home, um, it would be considered an uh, illegal and therefore the demolition would be considered legal. But uh, Nuruddin Amrul was not demolished under either of those two uh, situations, neither a security nor an administrative situation. His was a municipal ordinance where um, the, the municipality came by and told him that he had to clean up the, the public way in front of his house. His house is on the way between uh, two parts of the city where people go have to pass through to get to pray at Al-Aqsa on Fridays. And they said that the, the, the fence and the plants that were along the fence, which he had planted to give themselves a bit of privacy as the hordes of people tromp through on Fridays, um, that they were in the roadway, in the public way, and that they needed to be removed. So he removed and complied with this municipal order, but was demolished anyway. Um, the fence was demolished, the whole garden was demolished, and uh, one of the rooms was demolished anyway. Uh, Nuruddin's house was not demolished under a security um, rule or the, a breach of an administrative rule. It was demolished with, uh, under a security, uh, sorry, under a, a municipal ordinance, a cleanliness ordinance. And if you read that ordinance, according to the lawyers, there's no, how do I say, um, de demolition is not a legal uh, consequence for the violation of that ordinance. You can be fined for, for violating a municipal ordinance, but demolition is not a, uh, a, a consequence that is provided for in the ordinance itself. So even Israel's own, quote, legal, unquote, demolitions are um, an evolving policy uh, area. They will demolish under a new ordinance. In fact, they demolished five or six homes under that municipal cleanliness ordinance at the same time. And then they wait to see if the courts are going to uphold it or not. And this is a way that they can develop new policy at the expense of Palestinians without having to let's say, write down a policy saying we want to demolish more homes. They just do it, and if it doesn't get caught in court, they just continue to do it. So it's kind of, ask, don't ask for permission, but but uh, go ahead and then see if you can get away with it. Wow. And Go ahead and see if you can get away with it. <laughs> um, that does raise a, a sort of a... A related issue for me, which is that of um, Palestinians not participating in the municipal elections, because you know you would assume that in a well-run city, um, the residents of the city would have democratic oversight of all such sort of 
planning and zoning regulations and implementation of those regulations. Um, now, Palestinians, as far as I understand it, overwhelmingly have said they will not participate in municipal elections in Jerusalem. But there was one um, person who, Aziz Abu Sarah, who, who lives here in the greater DC area, who's a Jerusalem Palestinian, he, he thought about running in, in the last municipal election. Um, what, what do you understand about this whole issue of taking part in the elections or not? Well, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for Palestinians, and it's a, a very difficult uh, situation to be in. If they do not vote, then they will not. Then they definitely won't have anybody representing their interests, um, and the system will go on. There will be elections. People will be elected, and the government will run. On the other hand, if they do vote, they're granting legitimacy to a system of quote, representation, unquote, that is not legitimate and it's also not representative because even if someone that Palestinians elect is elected, they will not be allowed to uh, to change many of the really horrific and, and, and harmful rules that are imposed upon Palestinians in Jerusalem every day, things that range from tax rules that are unfair to, to security uh, surveillance that's unfair to even um, the way, I don't know if you've heard of these, um, there's a word for them, but they're like big uh, trucks that are tankers that are filled with stinky water, sewer water. They drive up and down the streets and they spray them into homes and, and, and to um, establishments. Do you remember the name for those? Yeah, skunk water. Skunk water, right, right, you're, you're right. So these are the types of things that Jerusalemites are, are, are vulnerable to all the time. And if you do elect a Jerusalemite in the municipal elections, uh, a Palestinian, they will not be able to change any of those practices. So that person is put in, a, in an untenable situation. I have a lot of sympathy for the difficulty of that, um, of that decision. Um, and I felt it myself here in the United States when I've been offered um, choices that I didn't think were either choice was a good choice. Um, and it's hard to know what's the best way to use your voice when you're in that situation. Right. And I mean, just as a sort of underlying thing regarding municipal governance in Jerusalem, ever since 1967, they have made sure that is the Israeli authorities in the city and nationally that the proportion of Palestinians in the city remain beneath I think they want it to be beneath one third so it's kind of regardless of anything the Palestinians can do it, it seems that from Teddy Kollek onwards Teddy Kollek who was revered in much of the left in this country for being, you know, an enlightened municipal leader and all of that. And, and the people who were working for him published books saying, no, you know, this is exactly what he, his goal was, was to keep the proportion of Palestinians in the city beneath a, a certain percentage. So it's kind of catch 22 for them. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people in the United States or in any civilized country are shocked that there's a government policy that says that the proportion of Palestinians cannot exceed a certain percentage. So there's a um, demographically gerrymandered um, population control. I don't know how you would say that properly. But um, it sounds very racist, and I think it is very racist. And the way to implement that, there's only one way to implement that, by getting Palestinians out of Jerusalem and by bringing Jews into Jerusalem. And they get Palestinians out of Jerusalem by making the city unlivable uh, and through home demolitions, through the direct uh, revocation of residency rights or of national insurance which makes it impossible for people to uh, to stay in Jerusalem and they have to move to other parts of the West Bank. And so this whole series of practices that make Jerusalem so difficult for Palestinians is part of this policy to keep the Palestinian population low. And the other way to bring Jews into Jerusalem is by establishing settlements, which we didn't talk about, establishing Jewish settlements and then incorporating them into the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem, which then increases the Jewish population. It's all very systematic and organized. There's nothing um, natural or organic about it at all. It's uh, it's really sad and it's it's quite angering to think that this has gone on for so long and continues to go on. I call it, in fact, um, the front line of the Nakba because a lot of people think about the Nakba in 1948 as having been an event where there was a large expulsion. But the Nakba is ongoing, and I think Jerusalem is the front line of the ongoing expulsion, colonization, and dispossession of Palestinians. Wow, that's a a powerful image. Thank you so much, Nora, for coming um, onto the podcast and sharing all these experiences. I mean, as you say, it's very angering and I'm sure that you're doing a lot. By the way, um, I will mention your book, which has just come out, um, Rest in My Shade. And maybe another time on the podcast, we should talk about the book, which hopefully is a little bit more hopeful than talking about Jerusalem. But anyway, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.